0: Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Kristen Smedley. She's a rare eye disease advocate, speaker, author, and TEDx speaker. Kristen, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I I think kind of what you're doing is really cool and innovative. And, you know, I I think gives a different perspective on kind of, well, blindness and and what kind of people are the perception of it. And just even just kind of dealing with kind of disabilities in general, because I think more and more nowadays it's starting to become Trendy is the wrong word but more and more people are talking about it and it's getting covered more and I think as more and more people move to the internet and kind of software and technology and artificial intelligence and stuff I I think and technology we're only getting kind of closer to curing some of this stuff or, or making it a lot more easier for people that are dealing with some of this stuff. But maybe before we kind of get into everything, let's start off and get to know you a little bit better and cover where you grew up.
1: Sounds great. So I am a Philly girl.
0: Okay, sure. (laughs) Through
1: and through, I'm a Philadelphia girl. Um, Born and raised, left uh, for a while. I was with my former husband going up his corporate ladder and went through, you know, lived in the Midwest and a couple different places, which was great. And now back in the Philadelphia area
0: okay very very cool so you you went to the University of Pennsylvania what did you take there and why did you, why did you decide to do that
1: actually I was at Westchester University of Pennsylvania which is known for um, it used to be called Teachers College way back in the day so I knew my whole life that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher okay so that's where I went got my degree there um, and was on a a track to be what I wanted to be was teacher of the year.
0: <laughs> okay. So and life got a little different. <laughs> sure. So before we kinda of get into that, what made you want to be a teacher? Was there like a defining moment kind of in your childhood or, or kind of growing up that you remember or it was just something in you that wanted to do that?
1: You know, it was just something in me. I, I now I'm one of five kids. I have four brothers. Okay. Um and I don't know if that had to do with it that I just was always uh rallying them around you know and and teaching them stuff and all that but i just it's one of those things that i'm finding more and more as i meet people that it's an odd thing that i knew from the time i was very little that that's what i wanted to do
0: interesting no i i think it's cool so walk me through you come out of school or university what did you kind of end up doing like uh, walk me or the listener through kind of your post-university career up until what you're doing now, and then I and then we'll dive deeper into kind of what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, so I um, graduated, got the um, – I, I went a little bit different path before I was teaching. It was kind of tricky to get a teaching job when I came out. Um, went through nonprofit, went to the YMCA, ran youth programs and um, summer camps and all that, everything that had to do with school-age kids. Sure. Built up the resume and then um, finally landed a job teaching third grade and loved it. Um, Challenging. I I joke now that I said um, I was in the inner city of Kansas City at that point. Um, Very challenging job. And at the end of that year, I said, well, um, and I did very well. The kids were amazing. The school was great. And I said, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll talk about how my life got a little bit harder sure. than that. But um, And then we moved up to the Chicago area. And while I was um, looking for teaching jobs there, I had this incredible opportunity to work for the Department of Education. And um, and my kids now, they crack up. that this, They say this is how old I am. I worked with teachers and principles on how to teach using the internet in the classroom when the internet all first <laughs> came out, you know, and we had sure. these um, yep. academies that we would have and teach them how to use the internet and all, um, and planned out, It's funny listening now to myself with the, where I've been and what I'm doing now and how it impacted it. But I also planned the regional educational conferences that all these teachers go to and, and principals and administrators, um, that was cool, and that I had no idea at that point how much that was going to help me. Now, um, and then I um, had my first child,
2: sure,
1: and um, went, you know, did my maternity leave. I loved where I was working, the Department of Ed. Went back to work, and within a month of being back to work, um, that's when we got the diagnosis that I did not anticipate with him. Sure, so we found. Do you want me to dive into that yet? Yeah, yeah,
0: sure. Keep going.
1: Okay. So um, my son, Michael, was the happiest baby you could ever imagine. Super simple. Life was great. It was like, you know, we were in a our, at the time, uh, back then it was the year 2000, they called the, the big homes, the McMansions, you know, and <laughs> perfect lawn, perfect house, perfect little family. And Michael's eyes started moving. Kind of crazy when when he would lay down on his back
2: and
1: went took him to the pediatrician. It just didn't seem right. Pediatrician immediately sends me to the emergency room for an MRI because they figured it was a brain tumor. Oh wow! Um, So yeah, that was a horrible few hours waiting for that to come back. So the good news was it was Memorial Day uh, Memorial Day weekend, and it was a Friday night. And the good news we got was that. He didn't have a brain tumor. It came back clear. The bad news was they anticipated it would be cancer. So they admitted him right away, 48 hours of nonstop spinal taps, blood draws, all kinds of stuff, and they were assembling a cancer team, and then it took a week for all the results to come back negative. He didn't have that either. So we then went um, back to the drawing board and started with... Uh, new specialist and it came out of all of that uh, with a neuro ophthalmologist discovered that he had this rare um, blindness called Leber's congenital amaurosis which I had never heard of it's a it's a very early onset of retinitis pigmentosa many more people have heard of RP Um, so there it was with this perfect little baby never I know this is so weird to me now I never had met a blind person in my life until it was my son. Interesting, crazy, right?
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. So then it was um, an interesting ride since then.
0: <laughs> no, but uh, like part part of the reason I really wanted to have you on the show is because you're such an advocate for obviously blindness, and you're doing like amazing things. But you took something that I think to a lot of people could didn't can't didn't handle it as well as like you have been handling it and you're you're basically working and tr- trying to help other people across the globe kind of bring this thing forward and you're writing a book and you're you're doing all this really great stuff about how you took something that could be very kind of negative in a lot of people's eyes and made it very positive right and and I love that about you and I really wanted to have you just to kind of talk about dealing with kind of disabilities and getting people to think about that stuff because you know when people are building kind of companies or sometimes those actual people with different you know disabilities aren't thought about right or there's such an afterthought and I just want to have people like you on the show to promote this stuff and actually get people thinking about this so Walk me and the listener through kind of all the stuff you're doing now, because it's a, it's a ton of stuff, and then I want to get into the book, but walk us through kind of all the stuff you're doing right now related to kind of everything you're doing, I guess.
1: Yeah, so um, I, uh, you know, you say that I, I do this in such a positive way, which I do try to do that every day, but I, I have to at least acknowledge that I did not start there. I, I mean, I'm okay. open now about the fact that I spent a good three years, um, I guess in the grief process of the life I had planned was not working out that way. Um, and it was my son, Michael, who at three years old was the happiest kid in the world that completely shifted my perception of this whole thing. Cause he was not impacted. It was me. I had to let go. Right. Sure. So, you know, I ended up, I was, I was been extremely blessed and also um, been blessed with with this tenacity of trying to figure this stuff out so I went and found um, you know I wanted him to be successful and I wanted him to have a, a life that he wanted to live. so how do you do that? Well I had to go find people that were doing the things that um, I didn't expect people to do with blindness and how did they get through school and how did they do all of that so I started, these folks out and that's really what what changed the trajectory of my life and I wished so badly early on that um, somebody would have connected me with those folks very early but it is what it is and I think it all you know your journey is the way it is for a reason
0: sure. um,
1: so we spent um, I spent nine years I ended up having a second son that was affected also three and a half years later and um, and it took me a few years to be okay with um, I, I say in in air quotes risking a second diagnosis with LCA you have a twenty five percent chance with each pregnancy of having another affected kid. Okay. So um, then when Mitchell was diagnosed as well, you know that kind of took the wind out of my sail for a few weeks. But it was a much it was a much easier um, getting back out there kind of thing because I, I had Michael as my built in role model of, of this was gonna be just fine. I mean, I I say just fine, but there was a lot of work that went into getting to understand how a person accesses the world without sight, getting them up close to everything, tons of extra hours, um, in a, in a mom's day. But I also had, um, you know, I relied on early intervention specialists, the preschool people, all of that found all the team members that we needed, got all the tools that we needed and we were coasting along pretty good for nine years. And, um, then, we never knew the gene responsible for, for the blindness. They were testing it at Johns Hopkins, but it wasn't coming up with anything, and we met a new doctor. I knew that there was some um, research going on with our disease and that it would be important to know the gene, um, but, you know, they had told us maybe in 50 years there would be a solution to this, to just figure out how to raise them, which was great advice, um, yeah, I didn't think so at the time. I wanted all kinds of hope and an answer, sure. right? Sure. So at any rate, come around 2009, um, just through the way that things happened, one appointment got canceled. They gave us a different doctor, um, and that doctor happened to say, hey, listen, why don't we try doing a new blood draw, sending it to a new lab, because they've made a lot of advances in technology and discovery and all, and maybe we can get an answer to this. And lo and behold, it took about seven or eight months, But we got the call that they found the gene responsible for the blindness. The gene is CRB1. And no sooner did we get that call on Good Morning America and the Today Show and all those big shows was a team of doctors that were making progress with gene therapy to reverse not our gene of LCA, but a different gene of LCA. And all eyes, no pun intended, were on this rare eye disease. It was unbelievable. So, um, you know, and like I said, we were, we were doing, the boys were doing well. Um, I had started doing some fundraising for a large uh, research organization just to see if maybe there was some hope that we could um, reverse the vision loss at some point. And I actually, I didn't tell my boys at first. It took me a year to tell them that we were getting involved in vision research because my dilemma was I had been raising them as nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you. You do some things differently. Um, You can do anything you want to do. Nothing's wrong with you. And then I'm like, how do I tell them now that I want to work towards fixing something about them that I never said anything was wrong?
2: And I'm telling
1: you, it took me a year, right? It was was like the mom dilemma. 'Cause sure. I didn't want to go bursting their sale, but um, so in my true fashion, I guess because I'm a teacher through and through, I need information, I need, you know, people to give me information. I went to their teachers, their principal, um, educational psychologists. How do I break this news to them? How do I do it? And every single person said the same thing. We don't know, but you're doing good so far, so you'll figure it out. And I'm like, No I <laughs> I want you to tell me exactly how to do this. Sure. So you know what? By that point, they were, what, nine and six? Okay. And I, I'll i never forget the day. I was sitting at our kitchen island. You know, there are these little stools sitting there. And I'm like, you guys, look, here, here's the thing. There's this opportunity that doctors are working on. And I went through this whole big, long thing. And I'm like, what do you think about getting involved in vision research? And would you want there to be an option for site someday? And I think you guys are cool the way you are. And I don't want you to change. I did the whole thing. And they both looked at me. And they were like well, duh, of course we would want, if there could be an option someday, sure, we would want to, you know, take a look at an option,
0: sure. um,
1: and, and it was super simple, they were like, anything else, Cause we got to go, you know, they, they had stuff to do, it was so funny, <laughs> and then, um, so then I, I went full force into fundraising, we tried to get the fundraising directed right towards our specific gene, and at that time, the big organization was saying, no, you can't do that. Um, so I, God bless the power of Facebook. That was right around 2011 when Facebook really had come on the scene and, and, um, everyone was jumping on it to connect. And I put some messages out there about, I have two kids with CRB1, LCA, anybody else? And I found 10 moms that wanted to work together to try to maybe be a next gene in the pipeline for gene therapy. and made a dinky little website on Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend is a big weekend for me in terms of my journey. Um, So there's Michael diagnosed over the year 2000, Memorial Day weekend, and then come 2011, I'm now launching this little website to what is now the worldwide patient organization for CRB1 retinal disease. At the time, it was just going to be a little group of parents that were going to fund one gene therapy study. Um, now we've got, we literally are global, um, patients from all over the world. We've got research projects in the pipeline all over the world. Um, we are, I'm on a committee with Retina International. Um, and, and I don't say all this like, like boasting, but it's, it's the power of, like I said, I was blessed with tenacity. Connections happening at the right times with the right people. So we went from we took this disease never no one ever ever heard of it to most there's most conversations where you start mentioning rare eye diseases. CRB1 and Kristen Smedley tend to get um, mentioned just from and and literally I harnessed the power of social media like a champ. I mean I was all over. All over that, and I some people might call me a serial networker.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. No, but that's good. but uh, I, I think what I love about your whole story, kind of when we talked originally a while ago, is what you did could be applied to kind of anything, right? It, like if if you have something, yeah. whether it's like um, you know, like a a disease or a disability or a business or a company or you want just like, a group of people dealing with something good bad or other like you how you use the internet to basically grow a global community around a cause is inspiring right and I I think just like kind of getting your advice on kind of all the stuff that you've done you know is is useful right for for a lot of people out there and what I was watching your TED talk actually again before we, we recorded and I love kind of how at the beginning you open with all these kind of successful people with you know blindness, right? And and like there's a handful of people that have done incredible things that a lot of people would never do even in in a lifetime. And so just getting the word and and just kind of trying to inspire people around what you've done for a cause to me, is really inspiring by my by myself, and really why I want to have you on the show. And and I think just if you can inspire one kind of listener to do what they want to do, you know, around a cause, that's kind of I I hope we do that today.
1: Yeah, and and honestly, that's why I so appreciate people like you with with your podcast as platform to get stories out there because it was it was the stories of the People that were succeeding without sight that sure. turned my life around. They were the tipping point for me. And that's why I want to keep sharing their stories and other people's stories because that made all the difference. And I've, I've actually used this kind of thing with role models, if you will, sure. um, in every, every facet now of my journey. So when I needed to figure out how to raise blind kids and what is the possibilities for their life, I went to blind role models, right? When I needed to develop a 501c3 that was going to make some traction really fast, Mm -hmm. I went to the ones that were doing it really fast. I went to the, the rare disease organizations as well as like, um, the Michael J. Fox, or who's made a lot of progress really fast and done the stuff that I need to do and, and learn from them, talk to sure. them, you know, and even, even through my divorce, I mean, I, I went to people that were successfully on the other side
2: mm-hmm. and
1: said, how did you handle, what did you do? So, so the fact that, that you host things, getting people's stories out is, is phenomenal me um, because I really think that sharing your story and and hearing people's stories and it makes a connection you know for folks in this world connecting people but it really for me like I said it was the tipping point in my life that had I not known those folks and and figured this out with hearing stories I don't know where I don't know where we would be we would not be as as thriving as we are now I can tell you that
0: no I I I love that so before we kind of get into the book, you you recently were kind of, you're working with the FDA to, to hopefully get some, some stuff um, and some gene therapy kind of approved. Can you talk us through that? Because you, you kind of told me before the show, but I, I think that to me is like really, really cool and fascinating. So, so what are you guys doing right now with the FDA?
1: Yeah, so um, we just had the... Um so the, the Spark Therapeutics is a pharmaceutical company that is did the clinical trials and all of that for a, a gene therapy where it's a different gene than the one that my boys have, but it's the same um, umbrella, okay. rare eye disease. And in essence, I'm not a scientist at all, but in essence, they, they develop a synthetic gene um, and go in, and um, they inject it into the eye with this virus that eliminates the, the defective gene and, and, in essence, takes over so that it does the job it's supposed to do. So, that is, so scientists everywhere are cringing at how I just described that, right? Because it's a very technical thing and whatever.
0: So, that's sure, your but little
1: I, third we grade un- teacher I, one. I, I think the average person will
0: <laughs> understand that better than the, the scientific. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, no, I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs>
1: right? So. <laughs> So that being, you know, the non-scientific thing. So now it's um, the FDA has to approve it, right? Okay. So yep. there is like tens of thousands of pages in the application to um, defend the science. And then it's uh, they did the clinical trials to see, you know, uh, not to get all hung up on gene therapy, but back in, in the late 90s gene therapy came on the scene they tried it to cure one thing it cured it but then it made um, people's entire systems go haywire and there were people that died from it so gene therapy came to a screeching halt Um, and then years ago it was revived if you will because what they figured out was here's something i never knew the eye is its own system where so if you do gene therapy in the eye and it goes haywire in the eye it won't go systemic is what the theory was, because of being its own system. That's why ophthalmology is the field that um, advanced so quickly uh, with gene therapy. So, you know, it's kind of like the perfect storm. Um, So at any rate, now the FDA has to say, you have to prove if this is safe or not, and then the FDA has to um, approve it as a treatment or not. So we were just at um, a special committee hearing, at the FDA, this advisory committee takes in all of the testimony for an entire day where Spark Therapeutics um, defended all the science, explained it, the, the panel of 16 people asked a zillion questions,
2: wow. and
1: then there was an hour of 14 speakers from the public that spoke on behalf of this gene therapy. I was had the most amazing opportunity to be one of those speakers, um, and there were patients that, that have had the gene therapy that were able to testify to say what they couldn't do before and what they could do now. And so when you listen to the science in the morning, it doesn't sound as impactful when they're talking about, oh, the, the patient could do the the obstacle course with one light level change. And you think, well, that doesn't sound that big. But then when this little guy, uh, Corey, stands up and, and uh, says that, he's like eight, I think, and he says he had the gene therapy. And before gene therapy, he had to come in, from playing outside when it was dark and his friends were still out there. After the gene therapy, he's out there playing at night because he can see in the dark. Like sure. that kind of thing is yeah. huge, you totally. know? That's um, amazing, really. And I had met some of them. Yeah, I, it, it's unbelievable. that, that and, they're, and they're so excited. I mean, I've met a couple of the kids that have had the gene therapy. And all along, folks have been saying for six years, did it really work? It doesn't seem like it really worked. I'm looking at the science and I'm like, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I'm a mom
2: sure. and
1: I'm watching these kids. I met one before gene therapy and then I met him two weeks after the gene therapy and the stuff he could do. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> you can say all you want if the science doesn't seem right. It works. I've seen it work. Um, so at any rate, the, that was the advisory committee. Um, then they vote at the end of the day, after all the testimony on whether they'll recommend it, that the FDA should approve it or not. And I, I don't know if it was the shortest. Vote in history, but it was pretty darn short, and it was unanimous. Yes, it was such a win for, for the field. Yeah, yeah, it was. We're still riding high on, on that. Um, And it's an interesting thing that I've said to people. You know, I it's a, it's an interesting dance that I do because I live in the. um, People can be successful without sight. It's no big deal if you have all the resources you need, right? Mm -hmm. And then I also live in the, but. If there if the science advances enough and we can restore vision, then that should, then that is something that I'm a proponent of. So my sure. deal is, I'm, I'm the option person. I, as a mom, I have two very different kids. All I want is to put options on the table. you know, live your life without sight and be successful, or have an opportunity for sight and be successful, you pick. So that's sure. my job. Just to get options to them, and I've said all along knowing how different Michael and Mitchell are, I would bet you that one will pick one option and one will pick the other. <laughs> sure
0: no that that's actually quite fascinating. So w- walk us through your your you have a new book coming out. Walk us through obviously kind of why you decided to to write a book and kind of what the book's about and, and kind of how you're changing the perception of blindness.
1: Yeah, so this was supposed to just be a little manual, a little handbook, you know, okay. maybe some stories stapled together. What I, The whole objective of this was, I just don't want any mom sitting in a little exam, retina exam room, getting the news that her baby is blind. I don't want her, another mom to sit there and feel the way I did when they said to me, I don't know what to tell you, um, good luck. You know, sure. when, like I said, if somebody would have handed me a few stories, a few names that day, I wouldn't have wasted three years crying on my couch. Would my Would my life have turned out the same? Maybe, but it just would have been a heck of a lot more helpful had I known stuff earlier. Um, so this was supposed to just be a little thing that a doctor says, here's probably the worst diagnosis you've heard ever, but here's some stories of possibility and potential. And if you go get the right resources and connect with these people, your child will be just fine. Um, it's now become um, a much, uh, well, I now by way of all of my work and my voice and being out there, my platform is a lot bigger. So it's, it'll be able to reach and impact more people. But the funny thing is, as I'm going through doing these interviews of these 13 amazing people, um, it actually covers 14 people. I interviewed 13, and in my intro, um, the first mega deal blind person we ever met, I built my intro around him because it really changed the trajectory for my boys. But, um, you know, listening to to their stories, it. I'm telling you, I reread them going through my divorce. I went back into some of those stories and learned something about surviving divorce through their stories. And my editor is actually my, um, she was my um, sixth grade English teacher. Oh,
2: wow. Um,
1: isn't that fun? And she, every single story, when I would send it to her to edit, she would email me back how life-changing it was to read that story. And it has nothing to do with blindness. Sure. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's that's interesting. It's just their stories are, you know, it's about resilience. And, totally. um And look, looking on the bright side, I actually have, like, their story, and then I have a, a Section in every person's chapter of what's the bright side that they found in blindness, because um, my son Michael always calls it blind perks when he gets to be at the front of the line at the amusement park and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean their stories are just they there's there's information in all of their stories for anybody struggling with with a you know having a pivot in life and that you didn't expect or. You know, a roadblock hits and and working around it. So it's it's been it's been the most amazing journey getting to know these people, and um and their journeys.
0: Sure. So when when do you think the book's going to come out? Do you have kind of a timeline?
1: Yeah, we're looking at early uh, 2018. So probably, um, well, we're hoping for January. Okay. But um, yeah, early 2018.
0: Okay. So obviously, like I want people to read the book, but. Give us a couple examples of kind of people that you've – or quick, I guess, quick overviews of a couple people that you have stories about in the book and kind of what what they did because I think it's really impressive what these these people accomplished.
1: Yeah, and, and some of it is like, you know, it's not even that earth-shattering. It's just interesting. Like, keep it simple. So there's um, um, Kathy Nimmer. Who is Teacher of the Year in Indiana? I think it's 2015, and then she was in the top four teacher in the country,
0: right? And she's totally
1: blind. That's amazing. Yeah, totally blind. And I'm talking to her, and I said to her, um, you know, with the whole, how did you do that? Like, how? What did your parents do differently? And and you know, they they raised you to be you always knew you wanted to be a teacher, and you just went for it. And she and I'm like, you know, and there's that statistic of 70 percent of blind people are unemployed, and how did you go about that with, with all that? And she said, nobody ever told me. Her parents never told her that it was challenging to be blind. Her parents never told her that all the these unemployed blind people, they just never told her. They just said, okay, what is it that you want to do? And, and we'll find you the resources, and then you go do it. Isn't that hilarious? It's like That's amazing. As parents, I think sometimes we just give them way too much information or something. I don't know. Um, but I thought that that was hilarious. And now she... Um, At the time that we were talking, she had just wrapped up, as Teacher of the Year in your state, you then go and pretty much meet the entire state. You go to districts and you do workshops and you work with them on being better teachers. Well, now she's always wanted to be a teacher. After she did that for a year, then she's like, I really like this. I like being in the classroom, but I like impacting all these teachers. And then here she is in this dilemma of, where do I go from here now? Like the, another whole facet of the world opened up to her. That was, that was so cool to listen to her and, and that she travels all around and figures it all out as a blind person. Um, was totally cool. And then there's um, Chris Downey was uh, an architect, a very successful architect, and had, uh, I can't remember his condition that he had, but he had some other condition that he had a surgery to fix, but they, if I remember right, they nicked his, I think it was the optic nerve. Whatever they hit, he woke up completely blind oh. at, what, 40-some years old. Wakes up completely blind. And this is an interesting thing that gives you a lot of insight into our services for the blind in this country. He wakes up, he's blind. Within a couple of hours, um, the social workers or whatever come into the hospital room and they're like, okay, what was your job? I'm an, he's like, I'm an architect. And they're like, okay, well, obviously we're going to have to find something else for you to do. And they're talking unemployment and they're talking, you know, all this stuff. And they hand him some crazy, he was calling it a Fisher-Price or Play School phone. They take his iPhone and give him this other thing. And he's like, hold on a minute. I've been blind for a couple of hours and nobody has any expectations for my life now. You know, and, and sure. uh, they're like, well, you can't possibly still do the stuff you do. So he says that um, he had a, a, a little bit of feeling sorry for himself, and then realized, you know, his father had passed. He had a ten-year-old son at the time. Okay. And his father had passed away when he was ten, and and he thought in that moment, like he had to be, he had to be there for his son. He had to show him that he still keep going. Um, so it was his son that was the inspiration for him. Within a month of waking up blind in the hospital, within one month, he was back to work as an architect.
2: Wow. Figuring a- it
1: out. That's and great. now he's busier than ever. Um, he actually has a phenomenal TED Talk on um, his point of view is that if if cities and communities would design their their um, way of doing things with the blind in mind, it would build communities so much better. Um I'll let you watch that TED Talk to see his whole message. But sure. yeah, somebody like that that. that um, it back to the exact same job that you would, I mean, could you ever think of a blind architect? It just sounds ridiculous, right? And then here he is, completely successful. So yeah, super. And then his journey with it and how he went through the acceptance is, is fantastic. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, lessons for all of us and everything. Sure.
0: No, totally. I, I think that's, that's incredible, right? Like, especially something so visual like that, right? Like, yeah or career yeah. right so now that's fascinating so i i know we've kind of covered this roughly throughout kind of our chat but how do you cuz you're a big advocate for kind of changing the perception of um blindness and kind of i think even just getting people to think about the differences in in human beings right i think it's bigger than kind of blindness but how are you how are you trying to change the perception of kind of blindness and the difference between human beings
1: well you know the whole reason that i got onto this um um, i don't know not a bandwagon but a bullhorn if you will Mm -hmm. was because i all of a sudden a couple years ago i was slammed with the statistic of 70 percent of blind people are unemployed and that blew my mind and then as i dove deeper into it because i'm watching my boys i mean they're they're in all the top Honors and advanced placement in a regular public school, which is actually a school district that's top in our state and top in the country. So it's a competitive school.
2: Sure, they're, that's amazing. You know,
1: blazing through it. They were on. Um, they've each won championships on regular sighted baseball teams. The only blind kids to play in the area. I mean, they've done all this stuff. And then I hear this statistic, and I'm thinking, Are you kidding me? They have all the resources. They they're succeeding. What's the problem here? Well, there was a couple of things, you know, um, what are the job opportunities for blind people? Well, it turns out that's not a that's not an issue. So I'm meeting all these different folks that can do all different things. It's employers. So when I was talking okay. with um, Kirk Adams is in the book. He's the CEO of the American Foundation of the Blind. And he was saying, you know, it's a tricky thing when you're blind, when you're trying to get a job. You send the resume out, right? Do you? Mm-hmm. He says, do you disclose on that whether you're blind or not? Because the challenge is you say you're blind, they don't even call you for an interview. Because they think that you can't – employers think that, oh, it's going to take so many different changes around here to be able to make this accessible, and they think it's a bigger deal than it really is. So he says, you know, you don't even get an interview, or if you don't disclose that you're blind, you show up at the interview with your cane, and they're like, are you kidding me? So it's, it's, that's when I started finding out that the perception out there is that blind people can't do much. So people close their minds to like an opportunity to hire a blind sure. person in a position that you might not think. So that was the reason I started getting on this, this um, bullhorn of, hold on a second. You know, I just started doing some blogging and, and getting you know, a Facebook page, just get my boy story out there that, hey. You know, they can do a lot. You know, what is this? And then it just, like, um, it just grew and grew and grew from there. Um, Like I said, God bless the power of social media. Um, And I also, while I was running my research organization, I made a switch three years ago from uh, being in the nonprofit, you know, investigating things and learning about things in the nonprofit world. I went, switched over to the entrepreneur world. Listened to podcasts about entrepreneurship and all of that to grow that mission bigger which helped my platform and my, my bullhorn got louder um That's and amazing. really everyone we meet now like so so i'll put it in context here kids that have grown up with my kids um they we joke that they're gonna they're gonna like michael and his friends are going off to college next year and i joke that these kids are going to go to college you know bump into a blind person and say so what baseball team were you on? What football team? Do you want to go you know, here? Do you want to, you know? <laughs> like, that's they amazing. just don't see any limits. They don't see limits on blind people. My guys have been out there with them doing everything. And really that that's the whole thing that I noticed. And then, like I say in the TED Talk, my daughter was born into this. My third child was born into a family that has two blind kids, but inclusion was in place. Accessibility was in place. So she doesn't see limits either. So when your perception shifts to um, okay, so they've they've got a vision impairment. All right, what resources do they need? If they if you shift it from they can't do anything to oh they just do something differently, it opens up. It literally opens up the world for everybody. Um, and it only took me it only took me how many years to figure that out. Um, no. But I, yeah, so that that's the reason.
0: No, I, I think that's amazing, and and for for people that. I kind of want to step back a second when you say kind of the, the employer kind of thing kind of resonated with me in the sense that they have all these perceptions of it but when when you're talking to them about this stuff what things do they need to to do or not do or kind of what things do they think they need that, that it's just not a thing like i guess what are the the myths and kind of actual truths about what they need to change or not change or or how do they kind of hire you know blind people or or whatnot into their organization like nothing's changed
1: you know what? it's funny if i think people are so nervous to ask any questions right and if people would just ask hey what would you need to be successful in this job you know simple and my guys can rattle off in five seconds i will say that that um even just in the past two and a half, three years since I had the idea to put this book together and started talking to people. The, the technology that's come about that fast is unbelievable. You know, so my guys can do pretty much everything with their iPhones. Um, we don't even have, um, like, we don't, they don't even touch paper Braille anymore. Everything can be emailed to these little, they have these little Braille notes that are, it's almost the size of an iPad. And the Braille okay. comes up on these metal pins that refreshes. So they do all their work. Like right now, they do all their schoolwork on these things, and they can email their assignments directly to their teachers. They can print out regular print things. I mean, there's so much technology out there that, that you know, in a, say, it's an office job or, um, you know, working with computers and stuff like that, it's so accessible because the Apple products have the voiceover already built in. So, oh, oh my God, so many things around my house talk. The iPhone, <laughs> they have it on, that talks. You know, the iPad talks. The Mac computer talks. Everything talks. They end up putting their earphones in because it's like, oh my god! Um, but there's so much. There's so much out there in terms of technology that that levels the whole playing field and takes blindness out of the picture. Um, but really, it's people just have to ask. I don't know why we as people are so nervous about. Or what are we going to hurt somebody's feeling by saying? hey how do you do that or you know with a blind person do you um how do I walk with you that's respectful and kind and get you to you know if you need assistance walking um sure. simple things you know
0: I, I guess if it comes across as like you you're generally trying to like help them I, I I think the average person's not gonna get offended by that right it's kind of right like like to your point yeah. if you say like okay I really think you're qualified for this job. And like, what do I need to buy you to supplement, you know, your the regular computer we're going to get you already? I don't see that as a negative. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that people probably think that, you know, to adapt a computer is a bazillion dollars or something, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And
1: it's, you know, it's a screen reading program. It's like, I, it's probably down to a, a couple hundred dollars with even that. And now everything, there's an app for everything
2: sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. there's an totally. app
1: for all of it you know and like i said with the apple stuff it's already built in so it's not even it's it's just not that big a deal to um make things accessible
0: yeah and and to be fair um like i i work in kind of tech as my my day job and so i i do have to say like the accessibility stuff built into ios is is really incredible for a handful of different kind of um things you know blindness and other things as well and and google is catching up i would say but they're nowhere near as good as kind of the iphone and and what uh, apple's kind of done in the accessibility space and and to your point just as kind of a, a third onlooker into the kind of the industry um you're right the screen readers are getting really good because we, we test some of the, the software we're working on kind of through that mm-hmm. stuff and they're they're basically you know, so inexpensive or free and they do a really good job kind of Mac. And even there's some not too bad ones on Windows. So just for kind of employers out there, if they were like, oh, what is this going to cost me? Like I personally have tried this stuff and it works pretty good, right? Um, if not, yeah. like almost yeah. in some cases, I, I've used it just to like, you're you're doing something else and you just kind of want to, you know, sometimes it's more convenient to be fair. Just like, just, just read it to me. So I, I totally. Yeah. Like that. Right. Um, the other thing that I'm I'm curious to know about is you mentioned they play your son or, or both your sons play baseball. Is, did I hear that correctly?
2: Yeah. So yeah.
0: <coughs> yeah. Walk. Well, like how, how does that, and I, I don't know, even know how to say it like properly, but how do they kind of do that? Because like, how does that kind of work? No, that's How's a great
1: question. That's like, what everybody says. How do you do that? Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, I I don't want to, like, offend you, but I, I'm so curious. Now
1: like, you think about it. Shut your eyes, you're going to have a baseball coming at you. Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of know. the first thought yeah. I
0: thought of. Was like, I played baseball as a kid, and just sometimes you get hit with the ball, being able to see fine, so.
1: <laughs> I know, and believe me, when Michael was nine and said, you know, he, had, he had grown up playing in a blind sports league. Like, he learned all the different sports with, blind people and and adapted sports and all that and then all of a sudden you know when he's in the regular public school sure. and this kid is out there at recess re, uh, recess and lunch and hearing these kids go back and forth about their baseball teams and who sucks and what um sucks and all that kind of stuff and he he wanted to be a part of it and when he came to me and said i want to join North in baseball i'm like i did the same thing i'm like you do you remember that you can't see right <laughs> sure you know that ball's hard when it's coming at you and God love him. I I said, All right, well, he's like, well, you always figure things out for me, Mom. So can we figure this one out? I'm like, darn. Okay, let's yeah, do that's it. Amazing. Walk on over to baseball registration. And the commissioner looked at me and looked at his cane. And he was like, he goes, oh, we have the Miracle League. You know, it's a special needs baseball league. And I'm like, I know. Michael wants to volunteer for that league, but he wants to play in the regular league. And he took a minute fought real hard and he's like well let's figure it out and That's found amazing. this incredible coach i know right he found um and now at that point michael had also he was on the football team um a lot of people knew him from school so he was already he was amazing on the swim team um so people figured hey and they knew that i would be a hundred percent in with being there to help and figure it out. I wasn't just going to drop them off at the field and they had to figure it out. So anyway, sure. all of that lined up for, um, they found us a great, this incredible coach that we were, um, you know, locked out, got on his team. And the way they did it was they play in the outfield. I, there was just, there was, I wasn't even hearing them infield. You know, I mean, th- that was just seemed a little nuts to me that that ball moves pretty fast. Sure. Um, so they would play in the outfield with another guy, and there was an understanding in the league with every coach that we could have an extra person out there on the field because you know God forbid some of these coaches try to look at any possible way to to get the win so we had um you know like say Michael was in right field, he had another guy if the ball came out to right field, the other guy would field it okay give it to Michael, and then everyone learned real quick that if Michael had the ball in his hand, you had to just, everyone had to shut up because the one voice, one voice would call his name where that, so say the play was at second, the second baseman would call his name and Michael could throw it right to him.
0: That's cool. And, and
1: make the play. Yeah, it was, re- and then Mitchell followed suit. He did the same thing. And then in, in batting, they hit off the team. Now I will okay. say that that was a struggle with Michael when he started, because at that point at nine, He played, you know, nine through, what, 12. But at nine years old, they came, there were no tees anymore. This was the big leagues. And he was, you know, a typical nine-year-old boy. He didn't want to hear about a tee. So then we had to have a conversation about, well, you can stand up there and swing. And we don't do things that, like, okay, they said, well, then he could get, you know, what, 10 swings, 10 strikes before he's out. And I'm like, that's not how we do things. We don't change the world because you're blind and change all the rules. You only get three strikes and you're out. So you're going to stand there and probably get out every single time. So what does that do for your team? Nothing. Whereas if you have the ball on the tee, you have a much better shot at hitting the ball and helping your team. And that's what sold him. He was like, fine, it'll help the team. And, you know, he led the team in RBIs that season. His first Really?
0: That's amazing. Yep. That's yeah. really cool. And he
1: also had to go, I mean, he,
0: he, oh,
1: he's gifted, right? So he's sitting there one night giving this whole speech about velocity and blah, blah, blah. He, never, he was mad. He would never be able, not mad, he was frustrated. He'd never be able to hit the ball over the fence because there's no speed to it. It had to be all in the power of him swinging. And I'm like, you know what? But think about it. You're on a baseball team. You're, you're having the time of your life. You're playing out on the field. You are involved every other way. So there's one thing that you, that you're not going to be able to do. What you do, you know? Sure. Yeah. And then uh and then you got over it. But yeah, and then they went on the next year um lost every game, ended up in the playoffs because that was the rule, everybody got a shot at the playoffs. Thank God they had that rule. Sure. And then from that point on they won. They went all the way to the championship and won in extra innings. That's <laughs> amazing.
0: That's really cool actually.
1: Yeah. And then 3 years later Mitchell was on the same team, the Orange Mets and his team won the championship too
0: that's amazing that's that's really cool (laughs) but kristen sadly we're out of time so let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself check up on the book watch your ted talk and kind of your organization
1: yeah so every single thing i do for the most part is on my personal site KristenSmedley.com, and i'm kristen with an i n um, and my last name's uglyly dot com and that's where you can find everything, but my organization is at um c r b one dot org and Thanks that's the where you can number all one. the uh, yeah the number yep. one uh, yeah it's i named the the website after gene because I'm like I was out of brain cells, I just had to get it done um <laughs> So CRB1.org. And I also have, um, the book is Thriving Blind. You can get information at kristinsmedley.com and then we have a community on Facebook where I post videos and updates on the stuff that my, my guys are doing. And then we'll be launching all the book stuff there too. So it's just Facebook, um, Thriving Blind.
0: No, that that's amazing. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the work you do. It's great.
0: Thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Okay,
1: bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.